America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day where we are already rushing into the midst, believe it or not, of the struggle for the Republican nomination. The uh, struggle for the Democratic nomination until President Biden does the right thing and announces that he will not run for a second term, something that he's not expected to do because the assumption is that he will announce his candidacy for a second term uh, shortly after the State of the Union address, which is coming up next week. Will that happen? Uh, what does it mean? And what about the notion that already there is the first significant challenger who has announced that she will formally announce her candidacy on the 15th of this month? That's Nikki Haley and many other Republicans, uh, at least a dozen, who are either launching campaigns or saying they will be launching campaigns. Where does it all go? What does it mean for the future of the conservative movement and the Republican Party? Uh, very few people better to talk to about that than my friend Paul Kangor, who is the Senior Director and Chief Academic Fellow of the Institute for Faith and Freedom at uh, the uh, wonderful Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And uh, he is also a professor of political sci science there and an editor at uh, the American Spectator. Uh, Paul, first of all, have uh, you seen any Chinese spy balloons up in the sky over in Pennsylvania? <laughs> no, I haven't. In fact, uh, hunting season is over here, and I think the last time I did your <laughs> the last time I did your show, Michael, I was literally heading heading out into the woods with my son for an extended uh, deer season. But if um, no, if I saw him, I could probably reach him with my crossbow, let I... alone my. Uh, my 32 Winchester special or something like that. But if I was, if I was in DC though, I'd be of no help because I don't have a concealed carry permit in DC. So thanks to the liberals. But if I, but if I see one up here, I'll take, I'll take a literal shot at it. And well, I, I'm country. sure e even if you had an AR 15, uh, they say that the balloon <laughs> is somewhere between 60,000 and 120,000 oh, wow. feet above the earth's surface. Woo. No, I can't reach that. I can't reach that with a crossbow. Yeah, I can't. I can't reach that with a that I don't have an AR-15. But you're right. I probably couldn't reach that with a cannon. Okay, that's that's pretty high up. Uh, among your many many books, you've written uh, several inspiring books, and they're all great and worth reading. About President Reagan, uh, how do you think President Reagan would would have responded? Uh, and, and no, I don't think he would have necessarily just blown this balloon out of the sky with the risk of uh, uh, all sorts of detritus and remnants of the balloon uh, smashing to earth and, and, and hurting people. Uh, but what? how would President uh, Reagan have responded more effectively than President Biden has done? Well, that's a good question, Michael. And I think maybe the, the more important thing to say is nothing like this happened under Ronald Reagan, Right. And, and I think that speaks to the fact that the Chinese feel that they can get away with this, with Joe Biden. And maybe one of the only kind of parallels that I see to the Reagan era, September 1st, 1983, so that would have been about 40 years ago, when the Soviets shot down Cal 007, the, the South Korean airliner, 
which killed, I think it was something like 261 civilians, and including a, a handful of Americans. It was on board. including a Congressman McDonald, right? That's right. That's exactly right. A congressman was a Republican congressman was on that plane. And so that was not a direct attack on the United States. And the Soviets, of course, didn't intend it that way. So it's very different from this balloon that's being being used for spying. But in Reagan's case, Reagan was was enraged by that. He, he was so angry. And Edmund Morris writes about this in his biography of Ronald Reagan Dutch. That, that Reagan literally put on his bathing suit and dove into the White House pool to cool off, to, to, try, to try to let off steam. And he was still so angry after swimming that Morris said Reagan got out his notepad and a pen while still dripping wet and wrote this speech where he just excoriated the Soviets, talking about them killing innocent men, women, children, and babies on that Korean airliner. So, but at the same time, Reagan was very careful about not to overreact in a way that could cause a war. And, and I think that that's the problem for any president. And uh, Biden, I, I think Biden already said something, right? Like, we will not respond to this or, or we're not going to do anything that would, uh, that, that would cause further problems. And, of course, that's prudent. But with the Chinese relationship with the Bidens, you know, the Penn-Biden Center and everything else, they, they they did this, no doubt, because they felt that they could get away with it, and they are going to get away with it. They're getting away with it now. Okay, you're the head of a think tank and one that I greatly admire and find indispensable, which is the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College. Uh, President Biden, after he left the vice presidency, was head of his very own uh, think tank, uh, the Penn uh, Biden Center, uh, the center at the University of Pennsylvania, even though it was grounded in Washington, uh, which is what, about 300 miles away from Philadelphia. It's it's not that close. But um, mm-hmm. what's what's the essential difference between the Institute for Faith and Freedom and the Penn <laughs> Biden Center? <laughs> well, I can tell you, first of all, there are no suspicions about the Chinese bankrolling us. Yeah, that, that's for one thing. Uh, I'd say, second of all, we don't have nearly as much money. In fact, I'll just be candid. Our budget is under a million dollars a year. And as my friend Peter Schweizer's pointed out in his book that came out about this time last year, red-handed, there, there have been tens of millions of dollars that have gone into the University of Pennsylvania um, from China, apparently, since the Penn-Biden Center was started. And then I would add this. For a budget, in our case, of under a million dollars a year, we, we, put out, we put out probably more in six months, Michael, than, than the Penn Biden Center has put out in the last five or six years. And, and I, so I, I had that same thought, you know, what is the Penn Biden Center? What is it doing? And, I, and how much of, money have I'm they taken from ex- China? They've taken, oh, it's $58 million, something like that? Yeah, that's that's the amount that's out there, and it's and and to be clear, it's it's not clear if that money is going directly to the Penn Biden Center, if it's going to the University of Pennsylvania, it's it's really not clear. And and in fact, if you go to the website of the Penn Biden Center, which I did just to try to figure out what what in the hell does this thing do, it's it, it, you go from page to page and tab to tab, and all you see is Joe Biden. You know, <laughs> Joe Biden here, Joe Biden, Joe Biden there. 
And in one of the first pictures that you get, there he is, and he's strolling with uh, with with Chairman Xi near some bridge bridge somewhere in Beijing. So so I, whoever runs the Penn Biden Center, I don't know why they didn't take that picture down, yeah, but it probably what, shows the. And, and they contribute much more the Chinese to University of Pennsylvania than to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, right? They do. That's exactly right. And Penn is considered one of the Ivy League schools. It's about I checked the I checked the website of Penn before I wrote an article on this for American Spectator. Tuition and fees for an incoming freshman student at Penn is about sixty three thousand dollars a year, and and that doesn't even include room and board. So yeah, I, all, I always get a kick out of how these compassionate liberals who run these universities and tell us how much they care want to charge your poor kids 63 grand a year in tuition to go there and and if you add room and board to it what would that be michael probably 75 80,000 a year at, at least uh and uh, again this is something where even for all that money they won't teach you about socialism and communism and capitalism the way that paul kangaroo will teach you at grove city college uh, or that uh, the Republicans were trying to teach the world in congressional debate today. We will get to that coming up on The Michael Medved Show with Paul Kangor. God help me, I'm addicted to... The Michael Medved Show. interesting things happen on the floor right now. You had almost, if you combine the number of Democrats who voted no and voted present, there's a hundred Democrats that won't stand up against socialism. That's a real concern to me in America today. That wasn't a college vote on a college campus. That was a vote in the U.S. Congress that 100 Democrats couldn't say socialism was wrong. And why is the uh, Congress of the United States voting on this idea that socialism is wrong, that it is a destructive system and uh, one that we do not want in the United States? Uh, basically to highlight that division among Democrats, one of the uh, points that I make all the time for folks is if you're looking for political strategy, you want a strategy that's going to unite your side and divide the opposition. And yes, Republicans can be totally united in condemning socialism. Democrats, not so much. Uh, the House voted today on a resolution denouncing so socialism. It was a bipartisan vote where the majority of Democrats, 109 of them, voted with every Republican for the resolution, while 86, as uh, Speaker McCarthy just said in what you just heard, 86 uh, voted against and 14 voted present. Uh, does it surprise you at all that uh, a majority of Democrats actually were willing to uh, denounce the system embraced by AOC and Bernie Sanders and Ilhan Omar? Well, I'm not, I'm not surprised, and I'm glad they did. However, boy, that number rounds up to 100 nicely, doesn't it? 86. That, uh, that didn't vote for it, and then 14 who didn't vote. And as McCarthy said, she had 100 current members of Congress, and you know, not a college campus. I thought the way he said that is very clever. 
that um, that couldn't that didn't vote against it. And that's a very powerful point. And I know for some people on the left, they'll see this as political posturing. But um, look, even people like Nancy Pelosi, uh, among other kind of more traditional Democrats, liberals they are in the House, they've been worried over the years, Michael, about the Democratic Socialist of America influence. And you know, they've been worried. They've seen how people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, in my area now, Summer Lee. I think there's about probably about 10 members almost of Congress currently, the Democratic side, who are from the Democratic Socialists of America. And the way that they've been getting elected is by primarying traditional Democrats in primaries. So the Democrats know that, that this is a battle within their own party. And I, I, more to McCarthy's point, if, if trends continue this way, where every new Congress, every couple years, the Democrats keep adding more members who are Democratic Socialists of America members, you know, that, that number is going to maybe flip pretty, pretty soon. I mean, give it, give it a half dozen years. And that would indeed be a pretty sad state if, if today's current Democratic Party, the party of JFK, RFK, who you knew, Michael, Robert F. Kennedy, um, and Harry Truman, if they couldn't vote on a resolution to condemn socialism. So I see his point. Good point. No, and, and again, and uh, the fact that uh, they pushed it and that they got every single Republican to to vote on the right side of that. Uh, because what's interesting is a, a lot of this has to do with something that Democrats talk about all the time. Right now they're very obsessed that people should learn uh, America's black history. And by the way, there are a lot of conservatives who agree with them, including this conservative. I think learning mm-hmm. black history is important, but also learning political history in this country and learning history as it really happened, not as a means of propaganda for today. And uh, as it really happened, socialism has been a flop and a disaster and has been harmful for ordinary people virtually wherever it's been tried uh, and the only countries that have have done well are countries that may have embraced some socialist ideas at their outset like the nation of israel but uh and this is something where people need to give netanyahu some credit the uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. uh he when he spoke to a joint session of congress when he was prime minister two times ago he uh he said there is no um word for deregulation in Hebrew, but after this mm, term, wow. there will be. And there <laughs> is. It's a deregulation. Uh, and, that's, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a great line. You, you know, in my, in my comparative politics course uh, here at Grove City College, we use the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom. And the Heritage has been doing this now for almost 30 years. And when they first started using it, Israel ranked very poorly, like around 80, 90, 100. And in the Netanyahu years, it really shot up to the point where I think now it's closer to 40 or something like that. So Israel has gotten so much more free economically and, not surprisingly, because there's a correlation here, has become more prosperous as well. Uh, There's no Um, question about it. And, and, And by the way, my brother, as you know, has lived in Israel for 35 years. And he started making fun of me uh, at the time, which happened about 15 years ago, where uh, the American tax burden is higher than the Israeli tax burden. 
And yeah, uh, no, it's true. That's true. And and I've even um, yeah, I I, I I I like wine. I'm a big uh, I don't know if I'm a connoisseur of wine, but I've seen wine from Israel in the last few years that I hadn't seen ever before. Uh, I mean, you know, at least at least not in my lifetime. So I'm seeing more and more products and exports that are that, that are coming out of it and also things that are harder to see and i think your brother is involved in this right like the information information technology yes sector. yes in fact and, he is yes. he is hosting he's hosting uh, an investors summit in israel for high-tech investors with seven thousand people from over a hundred wow. hundred wow. countries around the world including a number of Israel's uh, new uh, open to Israel Arab uh, countries, uh, which and, and socialism is not going to get you that right. Socialism, if, if you're doing socialism, you know you're at the bottom of that economic freedom list with Venezuela, where <laughs> where it's a country that has North oil Korea. literally. Yeah, that's right. Venezuela has a country with oil literally bubbling up out of the ground. And yet they had people waiting in line for gasoline, not to mention toilet paper, you know, not, not to mention food. I mean, so that, that's, not, that's not old history. That's current history. So if you can't condemn that, and I was thinking too, Michael, when you mentioned that, imagine if they put up a resolution in, in the House of Representatives to reject fascism, right? I, I mean, would there there'd be nobody on the Republican side who would vote against that. And, and, and yet here we are with socialism, which which is economically just as destructive, um, if not even more so. Of course, Hitler was a national socialist. The Nazis were the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Um, Mussolini, the fascist Mussolini, was a Marxist. So, yeah, that, you know, they're all, they were all about big government control. They were socialists. But, but imagine 100 people not voting on a resolution or against a, a resolution on, uh, on condemning fascism. That, 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 is, that is an excellent point. By the people, to get more information about Paul Kangor and his work and the work of the Institute for Faith and Freedom, go to michaelmedved.com, click on the banner uh, together with a shield right over where it says Institute for Faith and Freedom. Uh, go to michaelmedved.com. We will be right back on the Med. Do the letters IRS give you anxiety? I'm Dan Pilla. I've defended people from the IRS for more than 40 years. My book, How to Get Tax Amnesty, created the tax resolution industry and is responsible. G. Chang on Twitter. Um, he uh, he w most recently tweeted as the maneuverable Chinese spy balloon flies unimpeded eastward across the U.S., we look unable to defend our own airspace. Perhaps that's what China wanted in the first place, to make America appear incapable. It's time to show the Chinese and the rest of the world otherwise. Uh, Gordon, I, I appreciate your coming on on a very busy day. Is there another aspect other than just trying to show up the United States, make us look uh, pathetic? Uh, is there another aspect to Chinese motivation for sending this balloon over here? Or do you believe it was a mistake, as they say? Um, thank you, Michael. Um, no, it clearly wasn't a mistake. I mean, there are several different explanations as to their intentions. One of them is, I pointed out in that tweet, Another one is that they're trying to provoke a war. We know that there is a second balloon coming our way, 
Canadian um, forces are tracking it. And the question is, why would they send two in such close proximity? Well, one explanation is that they do really want to go to war. They're trying to provoke us, and um, this is one way to do it. Um, By the way, the first balloon is somewhere over Missouri, uh, according to um, most recent trackers. You don't get that from the Pentagon. We heard from today the briefing that they won't tell us where it's going, except it's going eastward. Um, but people are, are identifying uh, Kansas City. Right. I, I assume that they had heard that Kansas City was in the Super Bowl, so they, they were going after it for that reason. Uh, why would China want to provoke a war? It, it's not a, a war that they believe that they can win easily, is it? Um, well, clearly the U.S. and its allies and friends and partners um, as a group, are far stronger from a military point of view than China. Um, but China views um, political will as the critical factor. And clearly, China has far more political will than we do. And we can see this with an administration that is trying to deny the obvious. And yes, I blame Biden, but I also blame his immediate predecessors because they also had that view as well. Um, we're at a point where we don't have a sense of urgency as to what's going on. But it's clear, regardless of what the Chinese intentions are, and it's always difficult to um, understand intentions, but we can see what the Chinese are doing. They are um, engaged in the fastest military buildup since the Second World War. They're trying to sanctions-proof the regime, and they're mobilizing Chinese civilians for war. So we have to ass- – and now they're provoking everybody. And we can go through a long list of things they've done since December. But the point is, this is a regime, regardless of what it's trying to do, and, and it's very hard to tell, but they are doing things that can lead to conflict. And we have to assume that we are going to be in a war with China in the very near future. So do you agree with the timeline that was put forward by General Minahan with much controversy? It was a timeline that was basically endorsed uh, by uh, Congressman uh, McCall, who is the new chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Republican of Texas. Uh, they, uh, they're they talking about going to war no later than 2025. Uh, do you agree with that yeah. assumption? Yeah. Minahan, in that memo, which has been leaked, said his gut was that he'll be in war in 2025. Um, I do not agree. Um, I believe that we could be at war very soon, 2023. Now, we may still be at war in 2025, but it could could very well start well before then. And there are people who have different dates, but the point is we don't know uh, intentions, but we know what these guys are doing, and these guys are getting ready to kill people, specifically Americans. And we have a political establishment, Oval Office, but we also have a Secretary of Defense and three and four stars that have very little sense of urgency. Matter of fact, their plans are to make the U.S. less capable, smaller military now, so they can pay for the military of the 2030s and 2040s. That is very, very dangerous because if we fight China, I don't think it's going to be in the 2030s or the 2040s. It's going to be this decade. And we need to make sure that we can go and fight tonight, as the phrase is, because that's very well where we're heading. 
And if things don't change, Michael, we will be fighting this decade. Which is appalling. I, I take it that uh, you do not share the point of view of uh, some minority of the Republican uh, caucus in the House of Representatives that uh, is okay with cutting back defense spending. This is not the time to do that. That is not the time to do that. I'm in full sympathy with people who say the defense budget is bloated and we need to get efficiencies. But um, now's not the time to make the military more efficient. Now's the time to build up ammunition stores. Now's the time to be building planes and tanks. Now's the time to be getting people ready. And it very well may be the time to go to DEFCON 2. We need to scare the Chinese because if we don't scare the Chinese, this we are on a track to go to war. Nothing's inevitable, but something's got to change to prevent this drift. And one of the things we can do is to try to deter China by making it clear that we are willing to fight. It is not clear to me that the Biden administration, nor the Pentagon for that matter, is willing and prepared to defend our country. Wouldn't it have been, at, at the very least, to have Secretary Blinken um, call in the Chinese ambassador? I mean, we do have diplomatic relations with China. Uh, their their explanation of what happened is is preposterous, right? I mean, this is not a weather balloon, and it didn't just drift over on its old volition into the United States. This was sent here, right? Yes. This uh, what we learned from today's Pentagon briefing was this balloon is maneuverable, and that makes sense because it spent a fair amount of time over Maelstrom Air Force Base in Montana where we have our intercontinental ballistic missiles. So that was no accident. And as we've learned yesterday, this is not the first balloon that has come from China. There have been a number of them over the years. Now, the Pentagon won't specify how many and when, um, but we do know that there are indeed more than one. Uh, Well, actually, more than two, because there's two right now. And uh, that other... uh, uh balloon um, mentioned by the Canadians. Uh, at, at what point, they, they say that the balloon will sort of linger in American airspace for several days. Do you expect that we'll still be talking about this on, say, after the weekend, Monday, Tuesday? I don't know, Michael. I suppose that this balloon will, um, the Chinese will maneuver it off of uh, the United States, and we may forget about it, at least until the second balloon. Um, But clearly we should not because, um, as I mentioned, one of the um, logical explanations for this is that the Chinese want to go to war. Which is the most chilling and formidable of all explanations. Uh, the um, Gordon Chang, uh, you can uh, reach him at uh, Gordon G. Chang on Twitter. And uh, uh, also we've posted some of his most recent commentary at our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, we will talk about the divided reaction to what is clearly a provocation and that everyone should recognize as that at least Uh, Coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show.
Michael Medved Show. I, uh, there's obviously been a great deal of uh, tweeting and other social media back and forth, back and forth over the uh, spy balloon that is still somewhere around Missouri, uh, Missouri, Kansas, right around the Kansas City area. And uh, that has provoked a double shot for the tweet of the day. Turn the page now to the Internet. I mean, wow, what a great, smart tweet. Change his password so he no longer has access to his Twitter feed. Did you send the tweet? I did not send that tweet. My system was hacked. I was pranked. Donald Trump hasn't tweeted at us once, and I'm starting to get worried about him. So we have a new tweet. All right. Can I do the honors? Stand by. Tweet alert. And the first tweet of this double shot on the Chinese spy balloon is uh, from Senator Mitt Romney, a junior senator from uh, Utah. And he says, a big Chinese balloon in the sky and millions of Chinese TikTok balloons on our phones. Let's shut them all down. He didn't say shoot them all down. He said shut them all down, which is to me one of the questions. And you'd have to ask an expert in balloons, especially balloons that cruise so high. This balloon, they say, is at least 60,000 feet off the ground. Uh, Why no one has spoken about actually trying to not shoot it down, which is an act of war, um, but uh, to bring it down to somehow send some other resources up there to bring (laughs) this particular uh, floating balloon down. The other tweet, which uh, maybe has a suggestion of what exactly you could use, what resources you could mobilize to try to uh, bring that uh, balloon back to Earth, is from Eric Erickson. And Eric Erickson, who is uh, the uh, creator originally of Red State, if you may remember that, he uh, he writes, could we get a Jewish space laser on the Chinese spy balloon, please? Uh, and just for people who may be wondering and scratching your heads and thinking, what are you talking about, Jewish space laser? That was uh, uh, the uh, source of... Um, According to Marjorie Taylor Greene, she suggested that uh, Jewish space lasers had started the uh, wildfires in California, and <laughs> which has, has no basis in the world to back it up. Uh, speaking uh, for no uh, basis uh, in the world, the uh, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, uh, James Comer of Kentucky, uh, speculated about this suspected Chinese surveillance balloon that was flying over Montana earlier and has made its way to the middle of the country. This is uh, Congressman Comer, uh, clip 13. This balloon never should have been allowed to cross over into the uh, past the Pacific coast under the continental United States. Never should have happened. My concern is that the uh, federal government obviously doesn't know what's in that balloon. Is that bioweapons in that balloon? Is it did that balloon take off from Wuhan? You know, we don't know anything about that balloon. Okay, uh, the uh, idea that there are bioweapons in it uh, is does not 
appear to be taken too seriously, at least not by our conspiracy apparatus. Uh, and uh, the the real question here is, what does the second balloon mean? And the most sobering thought is that this is uh, uh, a deliberate attempt by the Chinese, and this is what Gordon Chang just argued, that this could be a deliberate attempt by the Chinese to try to provoke uh, a war. A political war is uh, already going on here. And uh, political war um, among almost everyone on every imaginable issue. But uh, Carrie Lake is still concentrating on the issue uh, that... Um, has impelled uh, her continued participation in political affairs. She has uh, been mentioned repeatedly as a potential vice presidential running mate for President Trump. He's not going to be running again with Mike Pence. There's no chance of that. And Carrie Lake has been suggested, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, according to all reports, and she's confirmed this apparently through her staff, uh, she would be honored to be running with President Trump. And uh, as this was Steve Bannon, who was a one-time campaign manager for President Trump and a White House aide, uh, speaking with Carrie Lake about her position as, uh, as she says, the duly elected governor of Arizona. Clip 14. I'm going to Iowa. I'm from there. I'm going to be doing an event with uh, Republican women in my home county, Scott County. And then we're going to do kind of a rally-style event in Des Moines. And I'm looking forward to getting back to Iowa. You're not sending the signal there? You're not running for vice president? What would that signal be? You're not running for vice president? (laughs) No. As governor of Arizona? Running. As governor of Arizona? I I am the duly elected governor. We're fighting in court. Since it went far, she's the freaking governor of Arizona. (laughs) Just deal with it. Okay. uh, She's taking the position that she is the duly elected governor of Arizona. Uh, There is also a strange argument that has broken out. Uh, and it's a, one of those rare arguments between President Trump and Speaker McCarthy. Uh, you could say the um, – uh, would Speaker McCarthy be the most influential Republican in the country next to President Trump? Or is that Ron DeSantis already? In any event, the um, – uh, McCarthy was asked a question – in which he apparently disagrees with President Trump, at least that became clear after he made his comments, he was asked a question about uh, the claim by uh, by many that Ashley Bobbitt, uh, who was killed on January 6th, was a victim of murder. She was shot by a Capitol Police officer who was preventing her from... Uh, what was an obvious attempt to break through a already broken window and go into the House chamber, which the Capitol Police were guarding at the time. Uh, this is uh, the commentary from Speaker McCarthy, clip seven. One of the first things Marjorie Telegrain said from the oversight dais was that Ashley Babbitt was murdered. Mm-hmm. Do you think Ashley Babbitt was murdered? Or do you think the police officer who shot her was doing his job? I think the police officer did his job. Okay, uh, and his job was to try to protect 
the House of Representatives. This um, all goes back to uh, a, a much deeper question, and uh, there's an important piece today uh, that, that documents that in a radio interview yesterday, uh, Hugh Hewitt, my friend, asked uh, President Trump whether he would support whoever wins the party's nomination next year. And Trump announced his third presidential campaign in November. He faced a number of potential challengers. Trump's response about would he support the nominee next year, he says it would depend, it would have to depend on who the nominee was. The hesitation from Trump, uh, writes Michael C. Bender, the hesitation from Trump differed from many of the Republican Party's top officials and most prominent activists, several of Trump's critics, Inside the party, including Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the minority leader, have repeatedly said they plan to back the GOP nominee, even if that person is not their top choice. Bill Barr, who served as attorney general during the Trump administration, called Trump's tactics extortion. In an interview in August with Barry Weiss, a political writer and commentator, what other great leader has done this? Bill Barr said, telling the party, if it's not me, I'm not going to I'm going to ruin your election chances by telling my base to sit home and I'll sabotage whoever you nominate other than me. It shows what he's all about. Barr said he's all about himself. And uh, the the question here about Trump running as a third party candidate or fourth party candidate, people are trying to compare it to the election of uh, 1912. But 1912 was very different because uh, the, the President Theodore Roosevelt was running against an incumbent president of his own party. Uh, we will get to that and more about the future of the GOP. Can the GOP become a genuine working class party? That's a question for this greatest nation on God's green earth. 